Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Roth, but my friends call me the Booby Docs, my popular social media account where I talk about breast cancer and breast health in an educational and fun way. I'm a board-certified radiologist who specializes in breast imaging and image-guided procedures. I'm also a 40-something Ashkenazi Jewish woman with a strong family history of breast cancer and BRCA, so I know a thing or two about breast cancer. And this is my podcast, The Girlfriend's Guide to Breast Cancer, Breast Health, and Beyond. If you or someone you love has been affected by breast cancer, this podcast is for you. Each episode, I sit down with top breast cancer experts, thrivers, providers, and those that love them to bring you the breast information. So get ready to learn, laugh, and let's be breasties. This podcast is not intended for medical advice. Please refer to your doctor with any symptoms or concerns you may be having. Thank you and enjoy the show. It is my incredible honor to introduce you to my friends at the Pink Eraser Project, a newly launched nonprofit to help accelerate the development of the breast cancer vaccine, which thanks to their support and top cancer researchers from around the country could hopefully be here in the next five to 10 years. Yes, you heard that right. I am joined by co-founder Kristen Dahlgren, an Emmy-nominated NBC reporter and medical correspondent for nearly three decades, who recently stepped down from her role to launch the Pink Eraser Project, which as a breast cancer thriver is a project so near and dear to her heart. Kristen joins me with her co-founder and friend, Michelle Young, who also happens to be a badass lawyer, stage four breast cancer thriver and advocate. Their mission to support breast cancer vaccine trials and researchers, including Dr. Kieran Dillon, Executive Director of the University of Washington Cancer Vaccine Institute, who joins me on the podcast as well. I promise this episode will leave you feeling hopeful, inspired, and wanting to support their mission of erasing breast cancer. A huge thank you to podcast producer Katie Dwyer for editing this episode. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Like many people, I first heard about you about a week ago when Kristen, you were the news when you announced that you were leaving your uh, position at NBC to focus on the Pink Erasers Project. So congratulations. (laughs) And what's it been like for you? Thank you. I mean, pretty crazy, right? Like I had worked for decades to get to the height of my career. I loved it. I was a network correspondent. And then I went on national TV to say I was leaving it and I was going to be founding a Pink Eraser Project. Um, it's The response has been amazing. And I think, um, you know, that should give you some idea of how strongly I believe in this science and this moment in time that I was willing to leave behind sort of the sure thing that I was doing and use this opportunity to just spread the word about it because you heard about this, you know, a week ago. I only heard that breast cancer vaccines were a real possibility within the past few months. And that amazed me. I had, you know, been a medical reporter. I was a cancer survivor. Of course I would have heard about it. And then Michelle brought this to me and told me I needed to talk to uh, Kieran's colleague, Dr. Nora Desis. And she just blew my socks off when she told me about the trials that are already in progress for breast cancer vaccines and how close we could be, but that there were these stumbling blocks in the way, mainly, you know, funding and and getting the word out and getting trials filled. And I just couldn't wait the 25 to 30 years that it would be along our current path when I really felt like after talking to these women, that there was something we could do to accelerate it. Just think about how many lives we're going to save. 43,000 people in the U.S. die every year from breast cancer. If we can move that timeline up by a decade or two, that is a lot of people that we can save. And so, yeah, this is a huge leap of faith, but one I believe so strongly in. I am so happy you took this leap of faith because even like you said, as a doctor, I specialize in breast radiology and I've heard about vaccines, but not in the way that we're talking about this being a reality now, hopefully in the next five to 10 years. And that I I would love to be without a job, right? Like I would love to not find breast cancer. I'm as excited as you. And once I heard the story about how this is going to be a reality in the near future, I was very inspired and knew I had to speak to you. So thank you. 
So tell me a little bit, before we get into the Pink Erasers project and all the incredible research that has been going on for the past you know, few decades, Kristen, I want to hear a little bit about your breast cancer story and why this was so important to you. Right. So I had no family history of at least early breast cancer. My grandmother had it about 85 plus. Um, and so I had had, you know, a mammogram in April of 2019 or May of 2019. And it was clear. And um, I went on about my life. And then on my 47th birthday, I was getting ready to go out. And I noticed kind of when I was getting dressed, there was like a little dent. And I was like, oh, that's strange. And I thought back to this story that I had done for NBC Nightly News on a study that came out in, I think, 2017, 2016 or 17, that uh, one in six women doesn't present with a lump. And so we're all taught to look for that lump and do our self-breast exams. And that's great. But not everybody has that symptom. And so when I saw that dent, I thought, oh, I have to get this checked out. Um, you know, my life as a correspondent was busy. The next day I got sent on a hurricane and I was traveling to the outer banks of North Carolina. And my husband was like, no, you need to find a place to get a mammogram and ultrasound down there. And, you know, in spite of the fact that everyone was evacuating the outer banks, I called the hospital and said, well, maybe you could fit me in if somebody canceled. And they did. And the nurse said, well, why don't you just wait until you get home? And I knew my body well enough that that was something new and something that I knew I wanted to check out. And so I went in and I had the ultrasound and it turned out um, it was stage two breast cancer. And, and I had it in one of at least one of my notes at the time we knew. Um, and so, you know, it's a devastating diagnosis. I didn't know anything about dense breasts or that I should be doing additional screening. I think I may have gotten a letter that I ignored or, you know, just, I, I just didn't know. And right. so, um, I, it was important for me to start speaking out as I was going through treatment. And so that sort of started this advocacy where, uh, I didn't want anyone to go through what I went through. So I was, it was important that I talked about screening and early screening and what people should do. And that's actually how I ended up meeting Michelle, was in a story about early screening and the amazing work uh, that she's done. And so my diagnosis really led me down to this path uh, where I am now, where I want to shout it from the rooftops, uh, not just now about the early screening, but about what the future might look like where none of us has to die from breast cancer. I'm so glad you mentioned the self-breast exam, that finding your own, you know, a, a change that is not a lump, right? Even the self-breast exam has become controversial, which, you know, brings up a lot of points about just breast cancer screening and misinformation just out there, like even from the cancer institutes, like the American Cancer Society doesn't technically recommend the monthly self-breast exam, but they recommend breast self-awareness, which to me is the same thing. And, it's you know, confusing, right? Like you would think at this point in our history, um, when there is, you know, there's so many organizations out there and there are so many people with breast cancer, you know, why don't we have better guidelines, better tools? And all I can say is from my experience, I learned it's the pay attention to your body. And yeah. when something doesn't feel or look right, absolutely get it checked out. Even when people say, you're crazy. There's a hurricane coming. You don't need to do this today. Mm -hmm. Well, if you think you do, then go and do it. Right. I always say you are, you know your body best. You are your own advocate. I agree with you. I think that all these come together and have concrete guidelines and information that's readily available because there, I mean, Michelle and I were just talking before you hopped on, but the U.S. Preventative Task Force is one of those barriers. And it's like all these different voices and no, no cohesive voice. And then everyone just kind of shuts down and says, you know what, forget it. So, yeah, yeah. there's so much to talk about there. Right. And we can get into the whole women's health issue thing and, yeah. you know, in general, um, how I, I don't feel like we're cared for as well as we should be. And we really need to be our own advocates. And that's a part of what Pink Eraser is. It's mm -hmm. really getting everybody involved in this effort because the science is there. Why on earth would we wait for it when we all could get out there and donate or raise money or volunteer or spread the word and support scientists like Kieran who are doing this incredible work? 
you know, this yes. is something for all of us. And so, um, yeah, in the past, there have been a lot of ways in which we have been underserved yes. um, as women. And this is one way where at least I feel like I'm taking this opportunity and taking what happened to me with my cancer and really turning it into something powerful and beautiful. And I hope that so many people join us and we say it's unacceptable for women to be dying of breast cancer when we could support this science. A hundred percent. Like the recent studies have shown that breast cancer is becoming much more common in younger women that don't meet the typical risk factor for breast cancer, which is why I'm so happy to hear that, you know, vaccines are on the horizon. And, and, you know, we have advocates like Michelle who are advocating for legislation to recover dense breast tissue screening, because we know a mammogram is not enough for many women. About 50% of women have dense breast tissue. So I am on board with you there. <laughs> so Michelle, tell me a little bit about your diagnosis of breast cancer and what that looked like for you. Um, well, I was, um, I, I went to a woman's doctor. I had no history of risk factor that I knew of um, in my family. I thought I was healthy. I did start to see changes. When I look back, I was told um, that it was menopause. Mm -hmm. I was told, take some estrogen. Or, and I would come back and I'd say, well, that doesn't seem to be helping either. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then after trying out different ways of looking at it, I suddenly had a flash because you're right. I was looking at my breasts. I was saying, you know, my breast feels full almost as when I was nursing. Mm -hmm. I, I check on this. It took a few weeks to get in because I was considered low risk. Mm -hmm. and within about, I guess, then they immediately, immediately I was told, oh, my goodness, you have breast cancer. And then an MRI was done. And I was told all procedures were canceled. I received a phone call from Dr. Lee Flower, who said, we have to tell you it's stage four. Um, you're not going to have the um, lumpectomy or the mastectomy. Uh, everything's canceled. And I said, well, what are you going to offer me? And I said, are we talking palliative? We need to meet. So next day we met. And she said, well, Michelle, you have dead breast. <laughs> If almost every day someone comes into our clinic like this. And I said, well, what are my chances? And she said, of ever having a healthy day again. She said about one in a hundred. Wow. And what are my chances of dying? She said about 50% in the next two years, a good 80% in the next five. And um, I said, well, we're going to have to fight on two fronts. Now, Dr. Lara just met me. We're, we're, she's retired, but we're still in close correspondence. And so it began. I, um, I came to question, of course, the way the entire stage four was treated, and even more so as time went on, and of course, the way of diagnosis. Because really, in 2016, I did have on a mammogram two shadows. Mm -hmm. I was not sent back for an MRI or even an ultrasound. I was sent back for another mammogram mm -hmm. and told it was just an error. So I came back the following year, even though there's a two-year, at least there used to be a two-year, you know, every two years, I came back the following year. I was so worried. Again, they didn't see it. The belief by Dr. Sledge, who's the father, really, of breast cancer medicine, um, is that I had it from 2012, garden variety, estrogen positive cancer growing, which doubles every six months when it's not seen. And to me... I thought of every woman in America that this is happening to, which is more than a few. And um, it was wrong. And I also thought of the treatment of stage four, which is non-existence. And of course, that was wrong too. And I have been in complete remission now for four years. Um, the laws are changed in Ohio. So hopefully I'm on the right track. I just want to say thank you for sharing your breast cancer stories with us. And I'm so sorry you had to go through that. But it is really just so inspiring to see how you use how you turned your breast cancer diagnosis into purpose, and you're going to just save you know millions of lives down the road. So kudos to both of you. 
I am very inspired by your advocacy, especially with regards to um, dense breast screening, which is something I'm very passionate about as well. We mentioned that about 50% of women have dense breast tissue, and we know that it makes it harder to see small cancers using a mammogram alone. And we now know it's also an independent risk factor for developing breast cancer. So as a radiologist, I always tell women to consider, you know, if they're proactive, want to know the earliest if they want the best cancer detection, it's really important to either add an ultrasound or an MRI to your mammogram every year. So that will help us find earlier breast cancers at a more treatable stage, possibly avoiding chemotherapy and possibly avoiding lymph node dissection and these other more aggressive treatments that, and or, or being told that, you know, there are no options, which thank God are changing. But as few women as as, as possible to experience a stage four diagnosis would be ideal. And absolutely. And, and let me go because we did change the law and it still needs a great deal more changing, which we can talk about. One of the recognitions I had, because my partners in writing the legislation for Ohio and then going towards the nation were the leaders of the American Radiology Association. You might know Annie Brown or Mary Mahoney. And what I realized from that experience, and of course, traveling the world to try to figure out how do I cure myself, was that the doctors didn't have a voice. They had the science. This is what was so frustrating. I mean, a short MRI can catch breast cancer. Yes. It was not expensive or unreasonable to have every woman tested properly. And it wasn't being done despite all the medical studies, despite the loss of lives. So the question was, is how did you get the doctor's message to the public. So really, I recruited my whole doctors and I began that effort from my chemo. While taking chemo, I began to organize the group who are still together. And we're still solving the problems of how do we get every woman early detection. Now, the thing I realized then is there was another group that was having the same problem. And that was the doctors like Dr. Desis and that these extraordinary doctors, and you're going to hear about the Virus Institute, actually could treat cancer in such a way that it would no longer be chemo, radiation, everything. You would be diagnosed and you could get a shot. Imagine that. It would, and if it was in five to 10 years, it would be like polio for a dollar, two dollars, simple, easy shots. And so each person would say, Well, gee, Michelle, they'd say, say, how long do you think it would take till we cure cancer? And they said, if we got rid of all the blocks, a year, two years, five years. So once I felt we made some headway on the first part of the problem, which is how do you detect, mm -hmm. I figured that hopefully we'd have a little luck in presenting the doctors again, because what they're doing is so mind-blowing, so amazing, and would save, I've looked this up, I mean, we're not talking about just 55,000 lives that we know of in the U.S. We're talking about something that within a few years could actually save billions of lives and their families. Not small. In the third world, there is no detection. There right. is no treatment. Imagine if we went to every village in the third world and gave vaccine shots. Imagine what would happen. We're talking about something that would change and release the potential of women across the globe right now are not just fighting death, stage four, or fighting cancer, but fighting all the things that happen to you when you get cancer, which no one talks about, that are often very, very debilitating, from the mastectomies from, to the radiation to the chemo. Why wouldn't we want to unleash the potential, the lifespan, and the ability of women to live as long, long and as fully as possible? And, and that is where we are. And I told, I said, to, I said to our dear Kristen, who is one of the great journalists of our time, she really is a lowest light. I said, Kristen, I got to call you about something else, okay? I know I've been calling you about early detection and what a sham it is in our country, okay? I just had to say that and how wrong it is. But I just saw the future mm -hmm. and we could cure cancer. And at first she didn't believe me, so I called her again. I think I called you a couple of times. <laughs> and finally, she agreed to call Nora. And, and we'll go to the restaurant. When she called Nora, and very few people would do this, she yeah. said, oh, my God, Michelle, 
how can I live my life? And her life is fabulous. Okay. I've come to know this woman. She is gorgeous. Her baby is beyond cute, Cece. Her husband is dreamy. Her friends all love her straight from high school in Jersey like you. Uh-huh. She works at The Rock. Let's understand this. The Rock. Okay. She has the dream life. And she said, I can't live not knowing that the world doesn't know of what we could have and that people are dying every day, actually about every 11 seconds in this nation. If we go to the world, we're going 11 minutes, we're going to buy the second milliseconds. And she said, I could be the difference. And I said, by God, you could, you, you've got, you are, you're, I mean, to me, and I didn't even see it then, but now I see it even more fully. I mean, she's like Herzl, to Israel. She is like Gloria Steinem to feminism. She could take something that we all were learning on our own was true. Okay. Yeah. And re- I mean, and bring it to the world so that every woman, I'm asking every woman who listens to your podcast, by the way, to join us, that every woman could stand up and say, wait a minute, it is my right to ask for medical care that is consistent with what science is. And I would like to live. I would like my child to live. I would like us to not undergo these horrendous treatments. Why can't we fix it all? And the answer is we can't. So I want to say that that no doubt Christine's a hero. And I I told him, she didn't listen to me. I said, keep your day job. <laughs> but, but, you know, she's that kind of person. She felt, and she's right, that in this kind of situation where there is such extraordinary breakthroughs that would save so many lives. We have to reach the nation. We have to bring women. And as far as I'm concerned, this is the feminist movement or the woman's movement or the mother's movement that we should all want to be part of because what is more empowering than to be healthy and to end a woman's disease that is being ignored and normalized as if it's okay. Michelle gives me way too much um, credit. Look, this is this is all of us. And I, I will say I'm writing something for Maria Shriver's Sunday paper, and I've been kind of trying to figure out what I want to say. And, and in a lot of it, you know, it kept coming, well, why, why me? Why am I doing this? You know, it's kind of the audacity to say, I'm going to make a difference and help cure cancer in the world. You know, I'm not a scientist. I'm a journalist. And... Um, I am blessed to have a platform that I that I'd like to use for this. But the question really comes back to is why not me? And I know we ask that a lot when you're diagnosed with cancer. Why me? Well, why why not us? I mean, one in eight, it could happen to any of us. And so as far as the, you know, making these steps and and taking on this project, why not me? Why not Michelle? Why, you know, why not any of us? We do have the power. Um, and I said this on the Today Show when I was leaving, you know, I've learned, if I've learned anything as a journalist, it is that one person can change the world, but it's also that it's a lot easier when it's all of us together. And so what we're trying to do is create a movement. And you see that Michelle, um, you know, is so passionate and able to rally the troops. And that's what I love about her and why, you know, I would follow her anywhere at this point. And it did take me a little while because I just hadn't heard about the vaccines. And that was my own, you know, failing in that I didn't right away say, well, OK, let's let's look at it. But we're here now. And we had those conversations with. Dr. Oh, no, no. First of all, it, it wasn't a failing. I think at first it was thought to be the I mean, a person stage four is, I assume, you assume they're desperate and they're grasping at straws, but I really wasn't. I actually felt the same way you felt. I, I have felt at every point in my life that you have a chance to make a difference for others and and that you're really, really, really fortunate if you do have that chance. And truthfully, um, first of all, Kristen, I'm not giving Kristen, I'm giving Talk to me in a year if I'm giving Kristen too little credit. <laughs> I have a feeling we're going to see this very differently. She's she's really extraordinary. But I wanted to say that what I want every woman to think about is if you're told to do your bucket list and instead you say, well, maybe I aim to obviously I aim to be to, to be to be to to question everything so that I can live. And then two, why not save the whole world with me? 
that struck me as a very laudable goal. And to see how far I would go, I, I, I now believe that everywhere I have gone, the number of people who've come on board has been, has moved my soul to the very core. And the recognition, I want to say this to everyone who joins us, okay, the recognition that you can save lives while suffering, if you want to call it, is an extraordinary one. Um, when I was driving home from passing legislation, it was a hailing, rainy day. It was horrible weather. And I knew that we saved, by my calculation, about 5,000 or more lives a year. And I thought, well, I said, if I'm not taken out today by the rain or the snow or by something else, don't you think I should go for 55,000? And then when I started to see what the nation looked like, I said, well, why not go for the whole thing? It, it was a series of recognitions that we have a choice. We have, I think it's 80, I believe it's 86,000, so approximately 86,000 seconds a day. And we can use that for small things, petty things, little things for ourselves. Well, we could use it for great, big, amazing goals. And if we're really lucky, people will start to come along one after the other. And the next thing you know, you have a Christian, you have Vaccine Institute, which is number one in the world, saying, okay, we're in. If you think you can help us, we're in. And then the next thing you know, you have the top, top people coming in from all over. In the very start of the profession saying, why not? But now we need, we need all the women. We need to create a wave of such interest that we actually change things. Because what has happened in the past on women's health and on breast cancer is that an issue is raised and then it's forgotten. We don't want that. We would like this to end with the end of breast cancer and with every woman who gets involved feeling genuinely empowered, valued, treasured, and learning their own ability to transform others' lives and their own. I am, I mean, Dr. Roth is on board, okay? <laughs> so, another one inspired. And when you talk about wanting to get this message out, I'm like, I want to help you get this message out. So I am so happy that we're here today and having this important conversation. But now we have to hear about the science, which is why we brought on Dr. Kieran Dillon from the Vaccine Institute to tell us about the amazing research that has been going on that none of us really know about. Yeah, well, I'm really grateful to be here. And uh, you know, before I talk about the science, I just wanted to say how inspirational it's been to have Kristen and Michelle along. We know what we've got here, and it's so uh, you know amazing to have now a platform where the world gets to hear about our work as well. So, you know, at the Cancer Vaccine Institute, we are making vaccines to treat and prevent breast cancer. Uh, and the basic concept is this, that vaccines train the immune system to recognize cancer cells as foreign and dangerous and then elicit uh, a response that results in destroying those cancer cells. And then that the body remembers those cells last for years after the vaccine has been uh, administered. And this works really in a way that's quite similar to how infectious disease vaccines work, which, you know, I went down this route initially, Dr. Nordesis, who's the founder uh, and director of the Institute, because vaccines have had such a profound impact on human health. Um, and we knew that the immune system could see cancer, but there were, there were, there were some blocks and vaccines could help that. Um, so we've been working on these vaccines for over 20 years. And this moment, you know, today in history, we really are at a tipping point because we know specifically the kind of immune response that's needed to kill cancer. Because of all of the research that's happened over the past few decades, we know a lot about breast cancer. We know the proteins that drive different types of breast cancer, and we can target those proteins. We also have the technology to help us to be able to do that. And specifically for us, we develop DNA vaccines um, similar to the mRNA vaccines that were used um, for COVID. And so our work is now in clinical trials. Uh, in fact, we have multiple uh, breast cancer vaccines in phase one and phase two clinical trials, and we've had really exciting results. Um, and I think that also initially led to people taking notice, okay, we've, we've got now uh, data from patients from a long time. And the study I'm specifically thinking about is one for a breast cancer vaccine called HER2 ICD vaccine. This vaccine targets a specific subset of breast cancer called HER2 positive, 
which affects about 30% of patients with uh, breast cancer. And those individuals with breast cancer cells express really high levels of a protein called HER2 that actually drives that cancer to be more aggressive and um, grow and proliferate you know, to other parts of the body. So we created a vaccine that targets a specific component of that protein that we know is going to elicit that tumor destructive response. And we made that vaccine as a DNA vaccine and did a phase one clinical trial for women with advanced stage breast cancer. So stage three and stage four breast cancer who had been treated and then had no evidence of disease or only had cancer in their bones, which is, you know, is indolent. And so we recruited 66 women who had um, received one of the three different doses of vaccine. So a lower dose, a middle dose, and a higher dose. And we asked, one, is the vaccine safe? Can we see the kind of immune response we're looking for? And three, we're going to follow these women for 10 years. How do they do? What is their survival like? So to answer each of those questions, one, we know the vaccine is safe. The vast majority... 97% 97% of women had really mild side effects, pretty similar to what folks get with the flu and COVID vaccines. So you have you know, injection site um, redness and maybe a little bit of pain, um, flu-like symptoms that typically resolve within three to four days. And um, we saw that with each of the three doses that we had, uh, all, of, uh, that all of those different doses elicited an immune response in the patients. And specifically, the kind of immune response we're looking for that we know would help destroy cancer cells. And then we followed these individuals for 10 years. And um, when we went back and analyzed the data, the results were really remarkable. Uh, We found that the middle dose was uh, the most effective. 85% of those women, 10 years after receiving the vaccine, uh, were alive. And more than half of those had not had their cancer come back. It's pretty remarkable. And even with the middle, uh, with the low and the high dose, more than 70% of those women were alive today. And to compare, we would expect women with advanced stage breast cancer, only 50% of them would be alive about four and a half years after the diagnosis. So the results were really remarkable. And um, and in fact, earlier, uh, actually last year, we had our first patient reunion, just incredible to have a room full of women with advanced stage breast cancer who've been around for a decade or more. Really inspiring for our entire team to know that we really are uh, out there and and helping change people's lives. That's so incredible. I mean, what to think of, you know, women that were told kind of that, you know, write your bucket list and there's no hope to now have them living over a decade is remarkable. 85% of them. That's incredible. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's thrilling. That's amazing. So what populations right now are the cancer vaccines being used in and what do you see it like, you know, in the near future? Yeah. So right now, most of our clinical trials are in people who have already been diagnosed with, with breast cancer. Our earlier studies started with folks who had advanced stage, you know, stage three, stage four cancer. And now some of the vaccines are actually moving into earlier stage disease. So in those populations, there are basically two things we're trying to do. One is to prevent cancer recurrence. So preventing the cancer to come back once folks have received their treatment. And two is, can we actually accentuate treatment that they're already getting? Uh, we have one clinical trial ongoing where folks receive the vaccine with um, neoadjuvant therapy. So this is chemo and other targeted therapy they might receive before they have their cancer removed by surgery. Um, and it's really early results, but it's quite exciting for most of those women who receive that. Uh, by the time go to surgery, there's almost no evidence of the cancer being there. So we're excited to see how, how that trial pans out and, uh, you know, the impact that can have. And the goal in the future is to actually move these vaccines into a primary prevention setting. So um, for folks who have, for cancer interception, which means that folks who might have a small precancerous lesion that's detected on mammogram um, or other precancerous lesions that might be detected can they receive a vaccine that would help prevent development of actual invasive breast cancer? Those folks often uh, can undergo very invasive um, and uh, uh, treatments, surgery, and, and actually even sometimes um, other forms of treatments, just chemo. And the other is a population where folks we know are at higher risk 
for breast cancer. So folks that might have breast cancer in their family, so a strong family history, or who might have known genetic mutations that we know put people at high risk. And so we're not in those populations yet, but that's our goal. That's, you know, that's, that's the next thing. We're in patients who've been diagnosed right now, and so we want to move to patients who, uh, or folks who are at higher risk uh, for breast cancer. That's incredible. So I know my, the people listening are probably, probably like, how can I sign up for a trial? Where, where do I, how, do, how soon can I get this? Like what are yeah. trials available that they could sign up for? Yeah, so, you know, right now we have uh, multiple trials that are ongoing who are for mm-hmm. patients who have been diagnosed with cancer. And, uh, you know, as you may know, for clinical trials, most of them have very specific eligibility criteria. Um, and, you know, for our clinical trials, we have a website, uh, wcbi.org uh, that has our active trials, um, but uh, usually we ask folks to talk to their to their oncologist and have them look at the eligibility. And if they meet those criteria, then we can uh, we can uh, assess them further to see you know they can uh, eligible. And otherwise, clinicaltrials.gov would have clinical trials, not just our trials, but actually for everybody um, uh, who might be working on cancer vaccines. And, and 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 let me add one thing to help you here. One of the things that Kristen, one of our main goals is to actually get the support and the money for the trials. What is heartbreaking here is to realize that there's so little funding of these trials that some are sitting on shelves of great scientists all across the nation, but that others, they can't offer them to the people who need them. Right. And we need to, we need to, jumpstart this the way we did the the race to the moon Mm -hmm. Uh, pronto said every person can can be able to take advantage of the scientific advances thanks to geniuses such as dr desis and dr dylan you know our, our goal is to get these vaccines approved by the fda so people don't have to be in clinical trials to receive them and this is one of what's really exciting about the pink eraser project the way Science happens now, right? We wait for funding and we ask and answer questions incrementally. What if we were to ask our questions of, you know, how well vaccines work in the different settings we're looking for? If we could do that with a bigger push, recruit the patients, build the infrastructure that we need to to recruit those patients, conduct the trials. That that's what would really kind of eliminate that, you know, not the twenty five year old goal, but you know, bring it to the next five years or so. So that's what's really exciting about this project, um, you know, to to think beyond just we're doing this one or two trials right now. Can we ask the, the questions we need to to get these trials to FDA approval so people don't have to wait, look for a clinical trial to receive them? Yeah, from, from what I understand is that right now all these trials are happening at these large major institutions, but they're not really working together. So the Pink Erasers Project is really coming and bringing the researchers together and the resources. And so you have a larger database of patients that would be eligible to have more funding and work together towards this goal of making cancer vaccines a reality. Yeah. You know, so we do some, we do have some partner institutions that we work with now, but imagine if we could roll out our, our vaccines across many different centers yeah. across the country. And, you know, that's important, not just for uh, for us to, you know, uh, advance our vaccines, but also thinking about from a patient's perspective, having access to cutting edge, potentially life-saving technologies, you know, n- that you don't have to live in Seattle where we're located to, to receive it, or you don't have to have to be a person of means to be able to travel to receive that, but you could travel, you could receive therapies where you live. Um, and right. you know, ultimately, once they're approved, hopefully they would be rolled out for, for anyone. Incredible. How will having the Pink Erasers project behind you, how will that help accelerate the vaccine project? Yeah, I mean, multiple different ways. One, you know, having actually people have awareness that these vaccines exist and the potential for impact that they have. Um, and we're standing on results. We're standing on results of clinical trials to, to help bring the resources together and to not just uh, the, the funding to support the trials, but but trying to build some sort of infrastructure where, you know, dealing with the FDA and other regulatory bodies is, is quite a hurdle. Can we come up with some sort of system to to help navigate those those challenges and bring all of the brilliant minds in the room to work together 
uh, towards uh, towards this major goal. Let's look at everyone's vaccines and what is the best way forward, and and you know really share resources. Uh, our institute is really good at bringing ideas from the lab into the clinic, and there are other folks who most of their expertise is in the lab. Can we help bring their ideas to the clinic using the expertise we have? Really, um, just bringing all the brains to the table and then having the resources where, you know, whether it's money or people, those aren't blocks for us to advance the work that we're trying to do. Incredible. I have to ask Michelle and Kristen, have you guys had a cancer vaccine? (laughs) No, but, you know, I'm raising my hand as soon as there's one for my subtype. I mean, I think, look, participating in these trials is such an important part of moving the science forward. And so that is a big push for Pink Eraser Project is to, um, you know, get a pool of people who can be in these different trials. And it's not just the Cancer Vaccine Institute at UW Medicine we're working with. You know, we've got the Cleveland Clinic with us and Dana-Farber and Memorial Sloan Kettering and Roswell Park. Um, And so, they're all, all of these scientists are communicating. We have meetings where they're all together in a Zoom room together and, and thinking how we can advance this and building on each other's research and looking for common platforms that we can use to get more trials more quickly to the people. And it's really important for us to build this community of potential trial participants that we're educating about it. So we also have a really diverse population that's ready uh, to raise their hands for these trials because that will, you know, move the science forward for all different types of people who have breast cancer. And we all do react differently to things. So it's important that we have a really diverse population that everyone's represented and understands what's available. And so that's going to be a big part of the push as well. And let me talk about the safeties of vaccines. Obviously, I, I'm, I was considered a very fragile patient. So my doctors were afraid of me, what shampoo I used. Mm-hmm. And, and Dr. Lauer and Dr. Sledge both said you can take as many vaccines as you want <laughs> and many trials. Vaccines are actually very harmless and people don't realize that. So uh, the answer is I would sign up for every trial that anyone would allow me in. It, it, a vaccine is such a one, what it does is it just boosts your immune system. Could there be anything more beautiful than that? You know, I have to say that, you know, vaccines, unfortunately, have become very political over the past few years. So what do you say to people that are, you know, have some some hesitancy regarding, you know, cancer vaccines or any vaccine? And I thought about this, sorry, Michelle, before I went on the Today Show, and and I wanted to make this point, is this is different than what people are debating or, you know, what's become politicized. Um, this is never going to be a vaccine that the government mandates. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cancer is not an infectious disease. You can't catch it by sitting next to me on the subway. And so it is, um, that's not the issue here. You are always going to get to choose whether or not to do this. Now, it may be you're choosing as part of your treatments and think about it. Your current options for treatment are mutilating your body, um, putting, you know, toxic chemicals into it or radiation. And and I'm grateful for all of those things and they saved my life, but there might be a better way and something that is less harmful over time and doesn't leave you with so many um, side effects. And so it's going to be a choice for those people. It's going to be a choice for people who are at high risk. And then it's going to be a choice, hopefully down the road for people who maybe don't want to even worry about getting cancer. Mm-hmm. And I'd rather do this vaccine than have that be the outcome. You know, th- we're we're accelerating things. We're not cutting corners. This, these are all going to go through the regulatory process and be very safe. We're just moving things around quickly. And I think everybody can agree that um, our current system is not always quick <laughs> and, yeah. you know, the most efficient. And so we're just trying to uh, help shepherd it through. I love that. And just to clarify that these vaccines, they're not in lieu of the the treatments like the chemotherapy and the radiation that you're in the surgery that your doctor may prescribe. It's in addition to. Yeah. So, so currently the vaccines are given to folks who have been diagnosed and, you know, 
Uh, Dr. Desis, our director, often gives this analogy. If a patient with an active bacterial infection walks into uh, the ER, you're not going to give them a vaccine to cure that. You're going to give them antibiotics. So the vaccines uh, boost the immune system to help support, clean up everything that happens after, after treatment. For the prevention vaccines, that's a different story where in that case, it would be to avoid any sort of these um, more invasive procedures. So right now, we generally give vaccines to folks who have finished treatment. In the case of the new adjuvant, that is, of course, concurrent with, with treatment that we have. I love that. So what is next for the Pink Erasers Project, and what can we do in the medical community as patients to support this mission? Can you all come behind us? Now, that may not sound small, but actually it's it's not that hard. You have these wonderful organizations. Like I, I discovered all the radiology, like the American College of Radiology. We really need the doctors and the patients to combine a unified force to say, this is something really important for our patients, that we don't want to be deprived of not offering them this option. Um, I would really prefer, I think there's not a stage for, well, maybe there is, but I can't imagine there's a stage for a patient that when being told to do their bucket list and have a painful, dreadful death over the next few months might say, oh, a vaccine, I'm in. <laughs> I, I think it's, or if I had a recurrence, I would be told, well, you're stage four, you have to have chemo and you'll be a different person when you're done. Who knows how many years you'll be on this and what it will do to you. I'd want a vaccine. So I think the first thing is, is that the doctors in influence, you're, you're on podcast, in their organizations all band together and say, you know what? We are not going to use 20th century medicine in the 21st century when we know women are dying or to say, consistent with our oath, we want to lead too. I, just as Karen is here and Dr. Desis, we want the world to come with us because we have created this incredible gift to humanity of a wonderful way of resolving cancer or even preventing it. And we do not want this moment in history, which by the way is short. Many of the doctors involved are several of them have dealt with cancer like our doctor herself, or they have had, they're older in their 70s or 80s. We don't want to lose this moment when we have, let's say, a Beethoven, a Mozart, geniuses all in the same room ready to cure us, and we let this moment go. Um, I have been told by the doctors that they bemoan the next generation. They said, you know, the thinking isn't the same, the creativity, the not, not your doctor, but the imagination that took place for these doctors in their 70s and 80s. We don't want to lose this shining moment when we could change everything with extraordinary talents like Nora. And I think that if all the doctors came with us, it would be, the, the, the movement would be beautiful because there'd be patients next to doctors. How can you turn us down? Add in the woman, It'd be a moment in America where we're proud of ourselves and where we're doing the right thing and where we're saving not just our lives, but really lives across the planet. It seems to me um, a very noble undertaking and one that I would hope that every doctor, every nurse, everyone involved in cancer care says, I'm in. And how do I help? And I think all of the people, too. I mean, I've said if everybody in this country just gave three or four dollars, uh, we would be, you know, at the end goal and able to fund all of these trials. There are also billionaires out there that could do it, you know, themselves. And I imagine most people who are listening or, or watching this um, already have some tie to breast cancer. Um, but as we've all learned, that could be any of us very mm -hmm. quickly. It's, you know, it's something we use that figure a lot. One in eight women. Um, most of us have, you know, eight female friends. And so we're all going to be touched by this at some point. And so you can either wait until it touches you and then say, oh, gosh, now let me, you know, get involved or, or open up my checkbook. Or, you know, we can all just work for each other and lift each other up and make this happen for all womankind. And men do get breast cancer as well. So, you know, this is a disease. And it also 
these vaccines will push forward care and vaccines for other solid tumor cancers as well. So this is a starting point. We're laser focused on breast cancer because we needed to have that sharp focus and be Mm -hmm. able to move from point A to point B. But this is really for all of us. And so I think everyone can get involved and it is donating. It's reaching out to us. It's, you know, it's, it's checking out our website, pinkeraserproject.org and signing up for newsletters where we can uh, keep you apprised of what trials we're funding, what trials we hope to fund, how else you can get involved. And it is really just spreading the word. Tell your friends, because none of us knew, uh, other than Kieran, a little while ago that this was <laughs> possible. Yeah. And, and, and we need to just let people know. And, and, and remember, and I'm going to you know say this, anyone can make such a difference. Annie Brown, who was a, a mild-mannered radiologist, who is absolutely spectacular. She became such an advocate all over the state and the nation. And you don't know what your gifts are or what you can do once you say, hey, how am I going to be the difference and take on the responsibility for, to try to help the woman in the nation and the world and the men um, conquer cancer. It, it's a wonderful experience. And every person that I have involved has asked to stay in. No one has said I'm out. They yeah. said, no, I want to do more. Even my nurse is now the head of the Tri-State Oncology Nurse Association because she said, Michelle, I want to speak out. Yeah. And I think what I'm saying is I do not see any negative to a person giving everything they can to this because they will change the world. And we need each and every one of you. Like I said, I am all in and I cannot wait to see what you guys do over the next few years, combining forces like this. I wanted you to fill in the blank. In five years, breast cancer will be blank. Erased. Erased. (laughs) (laughs) We are in agreement on that. Yeah. And like you said, like the HPV vaccine, we now know that, it, you know, it, it lowers cervical cancer and it nearly, if you get it, then it nearly, nearly prevents your, you developing cervical cancer. And to think that we could possibly be that close to it in the breast cancer realm and the other cancers that are coming, it's a very exciting time. It is an incredible time. And, you know, for, for all of us on this call, it's, it's quite a personal thing, but the impact really could be global, you know, and the way we're also developing these vaccines is to make them cheap, make, make them accessible for anyone who needs them, and, um, and and really just get them to everyone who needs them, not just those who have means. Um, so I think the impact is, 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 is huge. Well, thank you ladies so much. I am so inspired after speaking with you and I just, I, I'm ready to sign up. Where do I sign up? <laughs> Pinkeracerproject.org and, you know, be careful what you offer, Robin. We will be taking you up on that Yes, because this we do my- need everybody. So thanks for your interest and, and for everyone listening and watching. Um, it's just, it's, it's really been so uplifting to see the response to this. There is nobody who doesn't want this. So let's just get it done. Let's get it done. <laughs> you get a bunch of women working on the same thing. We can cure any. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this conversation or learned something new, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review and help spread the word. If you tell me you did, I'll give you a big virtual smoocheroo. And of course, make sure you follow me across all social media platforms at The Booby Docs for more of the breast information. And a huge thank you to my podcast producer, Christian Cubeta, an amazing medical student who also wrote and produced the music for the show. Take it away, Christian.